We are continuing to, uh, to dive deep, if you want to put it that way, no pun intended, down into the, the deep wells of salvation is what we're kind of calling this section of our study about uh, the doctrine of salvation. And we're getting that from uh, Isaiah 12, which as we talked about a few weeks ago is just Isaiah talking about God's deliverance in general, and he refers to the wells of salvation. In the context there, he's talking about the ultimate end of salvation, which is the inauguration of God's kingdom when God, uh, Christ takes the throne and the kingdom is established. But obviously, this idea of salvation has multiple uh, concepts, and we've talked about that way back at the beginning, about how salvation can be physical deliverance from danger or harm or sickness. It can be eternal deliverance from the penalty of sin. It can be deliverance into, you know, out of one arena into another, deliverance into the kingdom someday, for example, when Christ comes back. So context always has to determine meaning. But I thought that was a good, just a, a good way, a, a metaphor, really, for salvation. So we're calling this the wells of salvation. And then uh, last week, we started out by looking at substitutionary atonement, or two weeks ago. We spent two weeks on that. And now we're going to move into redemption. And I've got several key terms. I think I mentioned some time ago that the genesis for this series or this part of our series on salvation was a lecture I've given many times in the academic arena on key soteriological terms, which is a typical academic you know, title for something, but that just means key terms related to salvation. And so there are quite a few of them, and we're going to get to each one of them, but we're going to really dive deep into each one of them. So terms like we already did atonement. We're doing redemption tonight. Uh, I don't know if we'll finish it. We may have to stretch it into two. We'll see. But we'll get to things like regeneration, reconciliation, um, uh, repentance, um, all of these different terms that are used, justification, positional sanctification. Uh, there are many, many terms, and we're going to kind of talk about all of them and make sense of them. Uh, the Bible speaks of uh, of a lot of things that happen at the moment faith meets the gospel. When you place your faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone as the only one who can forgive sin and give the gift of eternal life, there are at least by one count, Lewis Berry Schaefer lists 33 things that happen simultaneously spiritually at that moment. Uh, the indwelling of the Spirit, the sealing of the Spirit, uh, the baptism of the Spirit. These are all soteriological terms. And they each... They all kind of relate to the same, they all land in the same spot, so to speak, our eternal destination, but uh, they come at it from a different angle and they have very important, meaningful uh, aspects to play. So redemption, uh, the simplest definition is bought with a price. And the illustration that I've used through the years, which I heard when I was just starting out in ministry and it kind of stuck with me, and uh, I think about it often. And uh, so I often share it because it's a good, I think, good picture of what we mean by redemption. And it's the uh, story, I don't think I've shared it with our church, but it's the story of the boy who, uh, who made a wooden boat in his wood shop, in his garage. And he spent uh, several weeks working on this thing and painting it and getting it all ready. And it was kind of his prized toy, the thing that he had built of his own making. And then the time came to take it out to the uh, creek and give it a shot. So he tied a string to it, kind of put it out on the creek and was running along the banks. Well, it got away from him and it got lost. And he was so disappointed because uh, he really loved this little boat. Uh, 
And uh, but one day he was walking through town and and uh, happened to see in the window of a pawn shop his boat. Evidently, someone had found it and pawned it at the pawn shop. And he went in to the owner of the pawn shop and he said, "That boat, that boat in the window, that's my boat. I, I want it back." And the owner said, "I'm sorry, that you know, if you want it, you're gonna have to pay for it." So he dug in his pocket and got out, you know, 50 cents or whatever it was, and he paid for his boat. And as he's walking out of the pawn shop holding his his prized possession, he says to himself, little boat, you are twice mine. First I made you, and now I purchased you. And that is a picture of mankind. God made us in his own image, and we rebelled because of our free choice. We had the free choice to do so. We rebelled against God and became lost, spiritually speaking. And, and that sinfulness of mankind is passed down from Adam all the way to every human being. Ephesians 2.1 says we're all born dead in our trespasses and sins. We talked about that in our first session on substitutionary atonement. And so God, who made us, then had to purchase us back. And redemption speaks of that price, that purchase price, being uh, the blood of Christ. So uh, there are several words. We're going to look at them that are translated redeem or redemption in Scripture. And they all kind of come at it from a slightly different perspective. But the idea here is to release from bondage, to pay the price. The, one of the key words, the most common one, is the word agorazo. And if you know much about Greek, you may recognize the first part of that word, the agora, which is the marketplace, sort of the open-air center of town marketplace. There was usually the bema seat there where the town council would make rulings on disputes and so forth up on a raised platform, which Paul later uses that bema seat as a metaphor for the future time of reward for believers after the rapture. But the agora refers to the marketplace. So the, uh, the agorazo originally meant to purchase in the marketplace. It was, an, it was a concept of buying something. And it is applied spiritually in Scripture to this idea of individuals being purchased back into a right relationship with God by the blood of Christ, or at least that purchase being made and available to them. As we know, the only way you can apply it is if you receive it. A gift has to be received. God doesn't force uh, this gift of eternal life and, and reconciliation back with him so that you're back in his ownership, if you will, back in the family of God, like Jesus told Nicodemus. He doesn't force that on you any more than he forced us to sin. We had the free option to obey his rules and stay away from the tree or to, against his best advice to eat from it. We ate from it. The result was disastrous. He then makes it possible for us to be reconciled with him, made right with him again, and there I just used two additional words that we're going to get to, reconcile and made right or justified. Uh, but he made it possible for us because he purchased us back. He paid our penalty, paid our price. But, again, we have the free choice. You can receive the free gift or not. The gift has to be received. And as we've talked about quite often in this series, the only way to receive that gift is by faith alone. By faith alone. You can't work hard enough. You can't earn it. You can't pay part of it yourself. It's nothing in my hand I bring. Simply uh, to the cross I cling. So this word agorazo is used to describe 
the believer being purchased out of the slave market of sin and set free from sin's penalty and sin's power and sin's bondage. That's the reason Paul in Romans and Galatians and elsewhere talks a lot about how you've been set free, the price has been paid, why would you want to go back and place yourself in bondage once again to sin? So positionally, the penalty of sin is paid for, and if we receive the gift by faith, positionally we are in Christ and nothing can ever change that. Practically, we still have that old nature, and until Jesus comes back or we die and go to heaven... Uh, we're going to always have that struggle between the old man and the new man, between the flesh and the spirit, right? And so when we yield to the flesh and, and you know, walk not after the spirit, we are essentially once again acting like a slave to sin instead of acting like someone who's been set free for whom the price has been uh, paid. So a couple of key verses here just to get us started. 1 Corinthians 6.20, you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. There can be no question that a price was paid to redeem us from the penalty of sin. He says the same thing in a separate context uh, one chapter later, uh, talking about marriage and singleness and all that. He says, you were bought at a price, do not become slaves of men. Okay. So we've been set free. And remember what Jesus said, uh, if the Son makes you free, you are free indeed. So we, having been redeemed, the purchase price being paid and accepted, we no longer have to live like we're in bondage or like we're unredeemed, right? Unpaid for. So let's talk about the penalty or the debt, you might call it, that had to be paid. Why was, there, why was it necessary for a purchase price to be, be paid? And what was that purchase price? Well, we've talked about this before, but it all goes back to Genesis. Remember, God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So this is, uh, you see four times there, this reference to the image of God or the likeness of God. What does that mean? This is what uh, theologians call, going back to the Latin terminology, the imago Dei. Maybe you've heard that phrase, the imago Dei, image of God. Uh, we just call it the image of God and man. And people misunderstand what really the text is saying here, we get the impression without really stopping to think about it, uh, because we're so familiar with this verse, that we were made as God almost, right? That being made in the image of God means we were being made like God, or in some case, some false teachers uh, actually say we are gods because of this. Uh, Kenneth Copeland, for example, holds that view. So, But they're missing the point and they're missing the grammatical uh, idea here of uh, ownership or the possessive form uh, idea in the grammar here. So let me try to explain what we mean by the image of God. So you've got the triune God, et eternally exists, never has been a time God didn't exist, never will be a time when he doesn't exist, he has no beginning or end. 
which is hard for us to comprehend. But God eternally exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And God, the triune God, eternally created time, space, and matter. I've said it before, the very first verse of the Bible, in the beginning, that's time, God created the heavens, that's space, and the earth, that's matter. The dirt, the atoms, everything we physically see in the physical realm. Uh, the Bible also speaks of when time shall be no more and when, before time began. So time is a uniquely created concept. In eternity, after the old heavens and the old earth are destroyed and God recreates everything in sinless perfection, there will be no time. There will be no night. There will be no darkness, right? And that's the way it was before God created time, space, and matter. So in that process, of course, we know from the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2 that he created you know, plant life, sea life, animals, and so forth. But the crown jewel of creation was mankind. And I think I mentioned in, in, a, in passing in a message recently on Sunday morning that everything God created, the Bible says he created it, uh, and then he created man, but he created man with a little more detail. In fact, he created it according to an image. And that image was essentially the pattern or the design that the triune God conceived of prior to making, the, uh, making mankind. So when the text says, let us create man in our image. It means the image that we conceived of. In other words, they said, we're going to come up with a pattern and we're going to make man according to our pattern, not according to us. It doesn't say, let us make man according to us and just like us and as little ones of us. Let us create man according to the image that is ours. It's ours because we conceived of it. Does that make sense? So uh, you have man over here who then is created according to that image. So another word, so, so it's not God equals image equals man so that we're essentially gods. It's God created or conceived of the image. Then upon creating man, he did so according to that image or that pattern that God conceived of. So it's what we call the divine design. God is a designer. He designed all of creation. But when it came to mankind, he had a particular pattern, a, a particular image, according to which he created mankind. And that's what we call the imago Dei, or the image of God and man, the divine design. So let's take a closer look at what that image of God and man is. Okay? So if you think about God on the one hand, what are some things we know about God? Well, we could list many aspects of the attributes of God, but those that relate most obviously and directly to mankind would include things like sovereignty, His righteousness, His being just and wise and powerful. God is love. God is creative. God is spirit. God has eternal life. He's eternal. Well, if you look at the image that God planned to pattern man after, we see some correlations. Uh, man, for example, has free will, right? I mean, think about that. The immaterial part of man, our mind, our will, our emotions, the real us, not what you see here with skin and flesh and hair and all of that, that's all going to, you know, uh, depart. Um, and I, I often say that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And I got an email this week, someone taking issue with the fact that 2 Corinthians 5.8 actually says uses the word and. It's the Greek word chi, a common word for and. And it's to be absent from the body and 
you know, it says we are happy, however, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. But I'm not, when I say that, I'm not quoting the verse, I'm just explaining it. That basically the Bible teaches, and Paul talks about this in Philippians too, that he desires to depart and be with God, which is better by far, but it's more needful for him to stay here and remain behind. I'm in a strait betwixt the two, you know, what should I do, right? And so the, the concept, the theology behind it is that when you're absent from this body, you are present with the Lord if you're a believer. If you're not, you're in torment. Those are the only options. No such thing as soul sleep. Uh, you never cease to exist, annihilationism. You, the real you, uh, when it leaves this body at death, remember separation, physical death is separation of the immaterial part of man from our physical body. At that moment, it either goes into the presence of the Lord, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's the concept. I'm not quoting the verse. That's the concept. Or to be absent from the body is to be in a torment. We, read, we know about that from, say, uh, I think it's Luke 16, the rich man in Lazarus. You know, when the rich man died, and where was he? Wasn't in his grave, you know, unconscious and unaware of reality. He was being tormented by the flames, right? And that's the destination of all unbelievers. So, so anyway, the immaterial part of man, the mind, will, and emotions. Man has a, a self-consciousness, a self-determination, a free will that enables us to make choices. And that, I might point out, is what elevates us above the realm of every other created thing, including animals. See, animals do not have a free will. I mean, I know sometimes we think they do, if you've ever tried to herd cats, you know, but they don't. And this is important because this is the one factor that renders mankind capable of redemption. See, animals, cows, horses, dogs, cats, whales, they don't need to be redeemed from the penalty of sin. We do. We are the ones to whom he breathed into us the spirit of life and made us according to an image that he fashioned, and that image has free will. No other created thing has free will. An oak tree doesn't get to decide, I'm not going to grow this year. It either grows or it doesn't, based on external parameters, based on the health and, and environment and things like that, right? And how many chemicals they're spraying in the air, <laughs> Right? That's what they have no choice in the matter, right? Uh, they don't have free will. We do, and we need to be redeemed because we used our free will to rebel against uh, God. So that's what correlates to God's sovereignty. We also have morality. Paul talks about this in Romans, the conscious bearing wit witness, our conscience bearing witness, right? Uh, God is just, we have a sense of justice, right? Uh, this gets into some of the arguments for the existence of God, but the very presence of an inner sense of justice and injustice demands there's got to be an origin for that or an ultimate standard for that, right? Now, we are now living in a culture and in a, a society, especially now today on the day of inauguration, where there is no absolute truth and people are going to be perpetuating a, a you know, truth that is a lie in a number of areas. I mean, they've already done that when it comes to blatant election fraud and other empirical evidence and things related to the, the uh, government lockdowns and scientific data. They just declare truth without any you know, sense for what the facts of the matter are. And uh, I talked about that a little bit in a short 10-minute video I did uh, today with my reflections on uh, the inauguration. So I might encourage you to, to check that out on our YouTube channel. But 
the fact that we have a sense of justice, you know, when I, when I put one of my dogs out during dinner because he's always trying or she's always trying to, you know, nudge up at you and get scraps, and I leave the other one in because she sits patiently beneath the table waiting to be fed after dinner, the one outside doesn't go, well, that's not fair. How come, you know, Fido gets to be inside and I, they're not sitting there thinking they feel injustice. They're just outside, you know, chasing squirrels and just doing what comes naturally to animals, right? They don't have that sense of justice. God is wise. We have intellect and logic, right? God is powerful. We too have certain abilities and, and things. And part of the depravity of man and this Luciferian agenda that we've talked about in our Spirit of the Antichrist series shows that man is depraved and using those powers to perpetuate you know, an ultimate evil uh, system. God is love. We have relationships, right? God is creative. We have expression, creative expression. God is spirit. We too have spirituality and God is eternal and we too have eternality. We will either live eternally in hell or eternally in heaven, but we have eternality. We do not cease to exist the way every other created thing does upon death. When a tree dies and is chopped down it doesn't go to tree heaven or tree hell it goes to the fireplace to be burned up it ceases to exist okay the, the, that's what distinguishes man as the highest pinnacle of creation is that we and we alone were made in the image of god an image that he fashioned according to a pattern that has certain unique qualities unlike any other created thing so with that understanding of the Imago Dei and understanding of how God created us, then we were reminded, going back to Genesis, that God told us of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. There's going to be a penalty, a price placed upon your head if you do what I'm telling you not to do. A consequence. So, we know the rest of the story. If you go back to the image of God and man, because we have free will, we could have chosen to obey or not. Had Adam and Eve obeyed and never sinned, they'd still be enjoying uh, uh, the blissfulness of heaven in the of the garden with fellowship with God right now. But what did they do? They chose, and we were right there with them. Paul makes that clear, that they chose to sin. And when they did, that means that the image of God and man became corrupted. Everything about it is now messed up. Our thinking ability is warped. Our morality, our sense of morality is, is warped. Our motives are jaded. And as Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 3.13, that depravity, that deception is getting worse and worse and worse. Uh, depravity is not a self-correcting problem. And, you know, one of the biggest uh, sort of smoking guns to prove that Darwinism is not plausible, and even most scientists, it was, never was a science, it was a eugenics program. Darwin himself even said that he was not a scientist, he was a eugenicist. But what passes as science Many people today, even scientists, have come out and said, you know, it's a bankrupt system. It just doesn't work. Because life doesn't get better and better and better. 
It gets worse and worse and worse. The moment you're born, you're starting to die. You know, we don't get better. But that's the reason in the early days of creation, 6,000 years ago, people lived seven, eight, nine hundred years, right? And then today, what, you know, you're lucky if you live by David's time, actually, you're lucky if you lived 80 or 90 years, right? Depravity began to set in and it affects the physical and the you know, mental and every aspect of our body. And, uh, you know, people say, but Darwinism, of course, says just the opposite. We were, you know, created, or we were, not created, we, we evolved from a wet rock, the single cell, and we just magically got better and better and better. And one day we climbed, crawled out of the ocean, and we crawled out of the cave, and we learned how to talk, and then we got bigger and stronger, and then we invented technology and, and industrial revolution, and look at us today, right? That's what Darwinism says. Well, yeah, look at us today. Let's see you go try to build one of those pyramids over there in Giza, right? Okay, how did those, how, how did that happen? People, oh, how does that? It must have been Martians, or no, no, they walked over and picked them up and stacked them on top of each other, because they weren't subject to the depravity of man and the corruption that happens to the physical body. And we see all kinds of evidence for those who take the time to look at it that mankind was capable of doing things. Uh, that, were, that, that, that we cannot even imagine them doing back then. Now, obviously, we have technology today. We have, you know, the, the competing agendas, like I talked a lot about in Spirit of the Antichrist, between Satan and God trying to take over this world. Satan thinks this world is his own. The whole world is under the sway of the wicked one, 1 John 5, 19. So there are things that he's doing on the evil side that are in, in an attempt to usher in the one world system. But uh, we need to understand that depravity is a degenerative disease. So when the image of God in man became corrupted, it placed a price on our head. Paul would say the wages of sin is death. But he doesn't leave it there. He reminds us that the gift of God is eternal life. Well, what is that gift? And where did it come from? Well, like all gifts, somebody had to pay for it, Right? You know, I, I could give you lots of wonderful, expensive gifts uh, for your birthday. Whose birthday is it? Is it Suzanne's birthday? Uh, tell Suzanne, I could give her tons of expensive gifts. But how meaningful would they be if the next day the police showed up with the manager of Walmart and took them all back because I had stolen them. I did not have the right to them. I didn't purchase them. I don't think she's going to appreciate that, right? I've learned. <laughs> You've learned, huh? How many years have you been married? Going on 49. 49 years? My. Wow. Wow, that's amazing. You think it's going to work out? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> well, I love an honest man. That's great. So that gift had to be purchased, and that's what we're talking about when we talk about redemption. Remember, Jesus put it this way. If you do not believe that I am He, that is, the Son of God who takes away the sin of the world, uh, then you're going to die in your sins. You're going to die with that price still on your head. Okay. Now, last week, again, we're talking about key concepts related to salvation, and they all correlate, but they're not all identical. They all come at it from different angles. Last week we talked about how Christ paid the price for the, for the whole world, but that price is only appropriated and received by those who have faith, right? Otherwise, everybody would be saved, which again, 
clearly contradicts Scripture where we see people in hell. So, uh, so those who the price has been paid for but haven't received it as a gift, then they're going to still die in their sins, right? In Matthew 25, Jesus says this, speaking to unbelievers who've never received the gospel. Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Now let me ask you this. Have you ever stopped to think about why are unbelievers cursed? Because they never received the sin payment. They are unredeemed. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians 3.13. Christ has redeemed us from the curse. In this case, he's talking about the law, which the law, of course, was just highlighting our sin. That's the reason the law was given. Uh, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So, redeemed here is that same word, agarazzo, the, to purchase from the marketplace. It has, you know, this idea of buying, right? So, Christ has paid the price for that curse. So, if an unbeliever dies in his sins, he's still dying with that curse on his head. But if by faith he receives the free gift of eternal life, then he is no longer paying for that price. He says it this way in Galatians 4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. See, the law, as we well know, which we're not under the law anymore, in chapter 3 of Galatians, he says, the law was simply put in place as a steward until Christ came. Right? So we are not under the law anymore. Someday we'll... I'm sure in the flow of our teaching, whether it's on a Sunday morning sermon series or some other time, we'll get into the whole concept of law and grace and what that means. We've got some stuff on our website about that, but uh, I'd love to kind of work our way through that uh, in person as well. But the law is not in effect anymore. The law, Romans tells us in Galatians, could not make anyone righteous, right? All the law did was highlight how unrighteous we were. It provided some order, some guide, guidelines, right? But as I've often said, I've never seen a stop sign uproot itself from the side of the road and jump out in front of your car, right? The law provides some order. It's a steward, to use Paul's word, Galatians 3. But it doesn't make us righteous, nor can it prevent sin. In fact, Paul says in Romans 7 that until the law came, sin was dead. What he means was it was, it was, a, it was, it was existing, but it wasn't as powerful, when the law came, it's like it highlighted sin. Now, when you sin, it's a sin not only because it violates God's moral standard, but it also violates the written code. Wow, you're doubly sinful at that point, right? And that's what transgressions are all about and so forth. But the law could not make anyone righteous. And therefore, it's a curse, it's, it's, it highlights the same predicament that has been in place since the beginning when Adam and Eve fell. And so we needed redemption. We needed to be redeemed from that curse, the curse of the law. Any questions about that? I'm seeing some just interesting looks here. I'm not sure if that means I have no idea what you're talking about or... Man, I'm disappointed Biden's got inaugurated. I really don't know what's on your mind, but it's probably something like that. Yeah. I was not backtracking too far, but um, the whole image of God. Yeah, no. You, you, Let's you go showed, back. You know, that we, there is a likeness that we have. 
of God. That we, there are things about us that are like Him, and and of course, there's. It says, "Let us make Him in our image," which you're saying is the image that we've thought of. Um, but then it also says, "After our likeness." So that it seems like there's at least a small amount of that verse that's saying they'll be a little bit like us. No, I, I don't. I don't. I don't disagree with where we land on that, right. but I just disagree the route that we take. Right. So again, even the likeness yeah. in the context, it's the likeness of the image. So it's just a synonym for image. He's repeating uh, the same that's thing. The, that's right. basically from the Hebrew text, right? That's yeah, saying... yeah, and, and the grammar. Right. Okay. But I, I think he, he's not saying two different things. He's saying the same thing two different ways. That right. God valued the highest pinnacle of creation so much that he made an image according to which he made us. That image is his likeness. So yeah, obviously, as we see here on the screen, right. that image that he conceived of has parallels to some of the things that are, are attributes of God. No question about it. Right. But we just want to be careful to... to it's an unfortunate translation in English to say likeness because it it sort of lends itself to like. Like, I'm like God. Right. Well, I am and I'm not. I am in the sense, as I'm showing you here, that there are parallels, but I'm not ultimately sovereign, right? right. Who's sovereign? God. Right. But there's an aspect of my being that is similar to that in the sense that I have free will. So I'm sovereign in a limited sense. Right. So So it's, yes, it's... It's, if you want to use like in the sense of similar, right. then yeah, we are similar to God because the image that he fashioned us according to is has qualities that parallel some of his qualities. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. I, I think it's just the English yeah. syntax makes it feel different. <laughs> yeah, I mean, as long as you're not saying, and I know you're not, of course, but as long as you understand that God did not make us as little gods, and God did not make us, you know, exactly like Him. Uh, and I think what helps us understand that is the concept of, you know, the image that I showed here, that we are made according to the image of God. That is, of meaning belongs, right? right. So, uh, you know, if you talk about the house of David, it's the house that belongs to David. The house isn't David. It's right. the house that belongs to David. So the image of God is the image that belongs to God. Yeah. Fine. Couldn't be because God made us, but God isn't made. Absolutely, that's like the huge difference. That's that's a little bit of a difference there, right? That's a huge difference. So I think, and I must have grabbed the wrong uh, slide here when I was putting this together. But I think, and and somewhere else, I have a slide that underneath this. First, I show the traditional view that God equals man. That that's the way most people just sort of fast track Genesis one twenty six and twenty seven. And all I'm pointing out is that. You know, there are major theological problems with that. And Genesis 1, 26, 27 really isn't even saying that. It's saying that God made an image. He made us according to that image. So we're once removed, you might yeah. say. Yeah. Yeah. So made in his image. If you look at the Bible, both Old and New Testament, how other small g gods are portrayed, they're dead, they're mute, nothing for you they're yeah worthless right and we're not no that's right we're not and you know the the image aspect there is a 
is, is loaded with a lot of other significance too because it was common practice in the ancient Near East to have little images, replications, models, statues of the pagan gods to, re, to point people to that god. The difference was they actually did think they were gods. That when you worshipped an Ashtoreth or a, a Baal or, or a Moloch or whatever, you, you were actually worshipping that god. What God is saying is that, and, and we this becomes clear throughout as Scripture goes on, that we are intended to be uh, a light that brings people to God. Let your light, let, let your light. I'm thinking of Jesus in uh, the, uh, the uh, Sermon on the Mount. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify God in heaven. So, to the extent that we are living out the imago day, right? We ought to be reflecting God's glory. Not that we're gods, but he created that image to draw people to him. And indeed, we see that played out like in the children of Israel. When they, when they crossed the Jordan, they were to go into Canaan and they were to, be, they were to testify to the goodness of Yahweh, the faithfulness of Yahweh, of Yahweh and they were to, in the, to the extent that they reflected the image of God in man by obeying and so forth, they were to draw people to him. Instead, because that image was corrupted and they catered to the you know, corrupted side, they ended up intermarrying and intermingling and just becoming just like the pagans. And, of course, we know the history of Israel. They, they got judged again and again for doing that. Well, someday in the kingdom... You know, we won't have to teach anybody about God because when the new covenant is enforced, we will all be made righteous, both practically and positionally, and we will be testifying to God, and people will will see Him. So that's so. So it's it, the image concept here. We could say a lot more about that. It's I'm not trying to minimize it at all. I'm just saying as we communicate this, just make sure we're not saying God or man is God, right? Or that somehow God made man just like him, right? Because right. it's that word like that sort of can have a lot of different nuances. More like he stamped his image is what I've heard people say yeah. before. Yep, that's another you know, imagery or symbolism there of the image is that you know, you, you've got this imprint and kings would put their signet imprint on these things so that they knew it was from him. And that only represented him. Well, we are you know, the ones that can ultimately demonstrate... Uh, these types of uncorrupted attributes, except that since we're corrupted, you know, we often, you know, use them for sinful ways. So that, you know, you can see it in every different aspect. I mean, just think about the sexual aspect. What God created for good, man is completely distorted. And now it's all perverted and corrupt and evil. Yeah. Okay. I, I know that somehow we're made righteous, but it has nothing to do with our own righteousness. It's the righteousness of Christ. Right. And to me, that, that gets... It is confusing. So the, 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 the thing that's hardest, I think, for us to really get our hands around is to understand what we call positional truth. That there is positional truth and practical truth. Positionally meaning we are in Christ. That's a, that's a position. Unbelievers are not in Christ, 
We are in Christ. That's a distinctively Pauline term. He uses it repeatedly. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation, right? 2 Corinthians 5.17. So that's the position. And so there is a once-for-all righteousness that can never change. It's our position. It's part of the family of God. It's all of these things that we're talking about that happen at salvation. And because of that, we will spend eternity in heaven. But while we're on this earth, bound by time, space, and matter, and under the corruption of sin, we still have that old nature. And so sometimes we don't perform or act or live in a way consistent with our position, right? So to use an analogy, a person in a position, let's say, of a uh, public office or a a person, say a politician who's, in a, who's a statesman, right? But then they, you know, that comes with certain expectations of honorability or whatever. I mean, think back to 2016 and the, the, uh, all the Republican candidates and you had these people that were trying to ask for our vote to be statesmen and they're up there talking about the size of certain body parts and unmentionables and just using crass language and you're sitting there thinking, how far have we come as a country? These are considered statesmen. Whereas in bygone eras, no statesman would talk like that. Why? Because it was, it was not conducive with his position. No one in that position would act like that or talk like that. Same thing in Christ. As a Christian in Christ, we, we, should, not, we should act like children of the King. We should conduct ourselves with dignity and honor to bring glory to God and to bring others to Christ and so forth. And when we sin, we're acting inconsistent with our position. So that's what we mean by position versus practice. So when you see righteousness here, God is righteous. As you said, we are declared righteous and given the righteousness of Christ so that we now are positionally righteous once for all. If any man is in, uh, or let's see, Romans 5.1, wherefore by faith we are justified, meaning declared righteous, right? So that's our position. But, of course, we know from Scripture and from our own reality that we don't always act righteous. So do we don't, if we are not walking uh, within the sphere of His love and righteousness, we're not walking in that we're not within that. We're like on the outside, sitting. We're still saved, but are we still righteous? Correct. Are we only righteous when we're... We're still positionally righteous, but we're not practically righteous. Not practically. So remember, the, going back to our family versus fellowship discussion. Yeah, so if you can picture that uh, diagram, I can't get to it right now without messing up the, uh, the recording, but... Nothing can separate us from that outer circle of being in the family of God. That's our position. We're in the family of God. Done deal. Right? In fact, we're going to talk about later on, we, we probably won't get to it tonight, but in this redemption discussion about how the Holy Spirit is our seal until the day of final redemption when we actually are glorified. So nothing can change that. But within that sphere, we can be in or out of fellowship, okay. which is to say we can be not acting righteous, but we are still positionally righteous. That statesman who doesn't act very statesmanlike is still a statesman. I mean, he's still a 
politician, a president, a senator, a congressman, whatever he is or she, but they're, you know, they, they when they, it's precise, they're, they're held to a higher standard, right? So when we act, when we see a person not acting in consistent nature with their position, right, we say, that doesn't mean they're not, you know, say a policeman who abuses someone, right? Well, that's not right. They shouldn't do that, but they're still a policeman until they get fired if they do. We could use any number of, of jobs, but you have a position. That position comes with certain expectations in character and quality and behavior. When you don't act like that, it doesn't change your position, speaking spiritually here. We're still in Christ. We're just not acting like Christ, right? So that's a, that's a, that's, it is a very uh, important, but also sort of tough to to really wrestle with. Remember in 1 John 3 how he talked about he who does what is righteous is righteous. Because and he uses them in both ways there. Only the positionally righteous can produce true righteousness. The righteous deeds that unbelievers do, though they may be moral according to the world standard, they're filthy rags according to the Bible, Isaiah 65. So, I think it's 65. So, you know, true righteousness begets real righteousness. So he who does what is righteous, practically, is positionally righteous. That's the only way you can do it. He who does not do what is righteous is, is fashioned in the old man and is catering to the old man. And in fact, he even says there is the son of the devil. He's acting like the devil. right? Because the old man, the unredeemed part of man, the unregenerate part of man, doesn't ever produce righteousness. Right? So I can never, as a believer who's positionally righteous, live in sin and say, look at this sin. That's the righteousness of Christ being revealed through me. I can never do that. But it's, but it's unrighteous. Does that make sense? So, yeah, that's a, that's a great uh, sort of important principle that we, uh, that we need to get our hands around, position versus practice. And when we really understand that principle... It will help us understand so many passages of Scripture that at first pass seem confusing. You know, because you think they're talking about positional truth, like James 2, right? If you think that's talking about positional truth, the only conclusion you can come away with is that you've got to do good works to get to heaven. Because James says so. Faith alone will not save you, it takes good works. And if you think save there is referring to our positional truth, justification, that's the only conclusion. But once you recognize, oh, no, no, wait, he's using save there in the practical sense, deliverance from the, the consequences of sin, the uh, dangers and practicalities of sin, which, by the way, as we said, 58% of the time the word save is used that way, so it's most common use. Then you're like, oh, no, he's not talking there about good works will get us to heaven, but rather good works will help us abide the days of time without serious consequences you know, without trouble okay so we've got about five minutes left here let me just wrap up this first section we talked about how you know we're redeemed from the curse and what is the price well the price is the blood and i'm really excited we're going to be talking about the blood this sunday because we're in hebrews 9 verses 16 to 28 and so in that passage that we're going to be talking about in our regular service, 
we read that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. None. We owe a debt because of our sin. Sin has a penalty. What is that penalty? What is the payment? The payment is blood, right? And we see this going all the way back uh, to the garden. Why was, you know, Cain's uh, uh, offering rejected, but Abel's was welcomed? Have you ever thought about that? Why did God, let's go back before Cain and Abel. Why did God create coverings from animals after Adam and Eve sinned to hide their nakedness? Why, why did he do that? Because it, 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 it uh, foreshadowed the shedding of blood to cover the penalty for sin. And how did those animal skins get there? There was no death in, in the garden because death is the result of sin. That's another reason that Darwinian evolution is so bankrupt. And people that believe in, in uh, the day-age theory or this Christian version of evolution that say the earth is millions of years old, they're putting millions of years of death and destruction prior to the creation of man. And the Bible says that sin, that death is the direct result of sin. You cannot have death before sin. So you cannot have millions of years of dinosaurs and all these other you know, ancient animals dying before sin because death came because of sin, Romans 5.12. Couldn't be more clear. So, so in the garden, none, none of the animals died. Well, where did, Adam, where did God get these skins to cover Adam and Eve? I mean, he didn't just borrow them from the, the sheep. I mean, I don't, I'm not a farmer, but I, I mean, I, I have never, I've skinned a few deer in my day, and I can promise you this, they were dead when I skinned them. <laughs> you know, I, I wouldn't imagine trying, I've had a few that I've walked up to thinking they were dead, and then they jolted, and I had to shoot them again. And I learned you wait a good 30 minutes before you get out of the stand, because you want to make sure they're dead. You don't want them to run off and, you know, have to go find them. But I, you don't skin a deer, right, before you kill it? Am I... <laughs> Pretty simple, right? Um, so death begins in the garden right after the penalty of sin, and we see the shed blood. Then we see it with the Cain and Abel's sacrifice. And then, of course, it becomes explicitly clear through the Levitical system. Yeah? So with Cain and Abel, you're saying that it was the blood of the animal that was more pleasing to God, or was it the intent... Of Cain just didn't put much thought to it and brought something able in how he approached his sacrifice. It was more of a, a gift to God. Gift's not the right word. Yeah, so I don't think we can go into the mind of either of them to try to extrapolate what their motives were. Mm -hmm. And so we all we can do is sort of let the text speak for itself and then connect the dots with God's you know, running narrative from Genesis to Revelation. So I, I wouldn't, you know, all I can do is make observations. The text doesn't explicitly tell us that Abel's offering was acceptable because of the shed blood. But given the, the other things I've talked about, it, sort of, it certainly makes sense that that was at the very least foreshadowing that principle. Uh, and I would rather speculate... Uh, that that was the, uh, you know, the difference 
than to get into the mind of the actual uh, two men. So we should look, what does the text actually say? Because the text is silent. Um, so let's see. In Genesis uh, 4, now 4 verse 1, Now Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Then she bore again, this time named Abel. In the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord, and Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. And then... Uh, uh, so the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, you will, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin lies at the door and its desire is for you and you should rule over it. Now Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass that they were out in the field and he offed him. So that's the paraphrased version. So the text, the text, what's that? That's the, that's the NIV, right? Uh, so the text doesn't, tell us it, it sort of rebukes god rebukes cain but it, it doesn't really say now i know people have sort of speculated that it was about the attitude but, but it does say if you do well yeah so he doesn't say if you if your heart was right before right. me he does say what you did was unacceptable and exactly you, and your grain offering was no good so right. go get a lamb and come back and do it and then everything's gonna be that's, fine that's kind of how it that's 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 my view. That's the view of a lot of others. And I think, again, you know, when you're dealing with historical narratives, which the Pentateuch is historical narrative in a manner of speaking, it's it's unique. Kind of like the Gospels are narrative, but they're unique. The Pentateuch is unique. It traces a story, but uh, of Israel. But um, I, I think the clear implication there, especially when you bookend it with, you know, what happened with Adam and Eve, and then with the sacrificial system, it seems like the what's the common theme there, blood. But, I mean, again, we can't say that explicitly from, from the text. But um, same thing as Genesis 3.15, which we've talked a lot about. Uh, the, what we call the Protevangelium, the first reference to the gospel. It doesn't explicitly identify the seed of the woman as Jesus. The New King James translation capitalizes seed. And it's pretty clear that it's got something weird is going on because the seed uh, never comes from the woman. And it's never ever spoken of as the seed of a woman, except in that verse, because the seed is the semen that comes from the man. So there's a we call that the the earliest reference to the gospel, because it's speaking of the ultimate descendant of Eve, and speaking there of a virgin birth, because he would in fact be her seed, but not through normal conception. She was conceived; he was conceived through the Holy Spirit. Would ultimately defeat the serpent, who we know is Satan. So a lot of this is theologically derived, comparing Scripture with Scripture. We can't base it strictly on the text, like you can say epistles and Paul's letters and stuff, which are highly doctrinal in nature, which every word has a significant meaning. So, But I, I take it that it's the blood. So we, we just actually got to the part about the blood, and we're going to be talking a lot about the blood um, Sunday in our worship service, but this is a good place to stop, and uh, and we'll pick up next week talking more about the price that was paid, 
lots of scriptures to look at, lots of more to, to kind of connect the dots. But redemption, uh, you know, remember, just means bought with a price. Okay? All right, well, we'll call it a night.